This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 2, Lesson 1. The reading is Ezra. We'll start with my first impressions. I was really struck this time as I was reading the first chapter of Ezra, the difference between the way Cyrus characterizes the God of Israel and the way Ezra does. In Ezra 1 and verse 3, Cyrus proclaims, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now he goes on to say in verse number four, and whatever survivor at whatever place he may live, the people of that place are to support him with silver and gold, with equipment and cattle, together with a voluntary offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And then in verse five, uh, Ezra presumably doing the writing here, he writes that everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. That may seem like the same terminology three times, but there's a subtle difference. Ezra has no problem with the concept of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. That's the way it was in Solomon's day, and that's the way it would be again in Ezra's day. But the God who is in Jerusalem, that's different. Cyrus seems to think that the God of the Israelites is the God who lives in Jerusalem or is based in Jerusalem, and we know that's not true. God's house is in Jerusalem, but God is not. God is everywhere. Consider it your mission to be a house of praise to the God of heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wherever you happen to be in the moment. You're probably aware that the book of Ezra is essentially divided in two pieces. The first six chapters deal with the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra himself doesn't even appear in that section. And then starting in chapter 7, we get Ezra's own story. The rebuilding of the temple, though, is the central issue in this period of time for the nation of Israel, what remains of the nation of Israel anyway. In chapter 4, Zerubbabel and Jeshua the priest are particularly assigned to the rebuilding of this temple, and they get some help from unexpected quarters. Verse 1 reads, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for like you we seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezra, Hadden, king of Assyria, who brought us up from here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will build together for the Lord God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. These are the people that later became known as Samaritans. They were imported by the Assyrians, as they themselves indicate, to populate the territory previously occupied by the northern tribes of Israel. They went through a form of worshiping Jehovah God, but never really with any kind of accuracy or consistency. And they certainly did not have any kind of root in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not to say that someone can't come in from the outside and become a true worshiper of Yahweh. Many people had in the Old Testament days. But Zerubbabel and the others realized that the Samaritans do not fit into that category. These are worshipers of convenience. 
who were not specifically authorized by Cyrus to build the project in the first place, and so they had a legal out there. But the spiritual aspect is much more important. They do not have a place in this temple because they are not really the people of God. And if that sounds unnecessarily exclusionary, then notice what happens in verses 4 and 5. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and bribed advisors against them to frustrate their advice all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If they were really one in faith with the nation of Judah, they would have acted like it. Fellowship is defined by God, not by us. And we need to remember that in our era, just as Israel of old needed to remind themselves of that back then. Fellowship is defined by God, and it's enforced by us. As we are building a house of praise to the God of heaven, as we are glorifying him or trying to in this life, there are certain people who have a place, and there are certain people who do not. That's not my idea. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, there is a necessarily exclusionary aspect to the kingdom. There is a wide gate, and there is a narrow gate. Those who are entering the narrow gate are doing so because they truly trust in God. They are truly trying to accomplish His purposes in their life. And corrupting the fellowship that God has given us with people who are on the outside, who ultimately do not share our faith, that may accomplish some kind of short-term purpose for us. It may get the building built quicker, as it were. But it is not accomplishing God's purposes. And we're kidding ourselves if we think otherwise. Well, it's the book of Ezra, after all. Let's talk a little bit about Ezra. For my one verse, I'll go to Ezra 7 and verse 10, the verse that pretty much everybody else goes to with regard to this passage. I'll do the obvious thing every once in a while here. For Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Many a preacher, including this one, has gone to Ezra 7.10 and used it as a template for how we behave as the people of God. I will continue to do so. It serves that purpose perfectly, it would seem. We study the law first, and then we put it to work in our life, and then we tell others about it. None of these steps is optional. We can't skip one and get to the other. You have to start by knowing what God's will is. How else could you possibly start? Now, I realize that some people will try to start somewhere else. They'll try to make themselves out to be the people of God without a true knowledge of God's law. We already talked about the Samaritans. They fit into this category. Many people who call themselves Christians these days do not know Jesus from a hole in the wall, never pick up a Bible, or rarely actively try to avoid assembling with Christians on the Lord's Day or in any other situation. They're going to do it by themselves. They're going to do it on their own, as it were. God does not allow us that option. He never has. He gives us his word, and he expects us to listen. Otherwise, why give the word in the first place? And not just listen to it, of course, but to keep it, to practice the things that we find in it. This is not a haphazard kind of activity on our part. We read God's law, and we're going to find things that we perhaps like somewhat. We're going to find things certainly that we do not especially care for. But what we do consistently is we do what God has told us to do, or try to at least. That is our task. And then to teach other people to do the same. And I realize that evangelism is not necessarily the most popular position to take with regard to the people out there in the world. Why would things be any different than they always have been? People in the darkness have always loved the darkness. 
they shudder at the idea of coming into the light. And that's our task, to bring them into the light. The only way that can happen, though, is for us to know what God's will is and for us to be consistent and dutiful practitioners of that law. And hopefully when people see the word at work in our life, they'll be inclined to listen to the word coming out of our mouth, the word that is ultimately not our word, but his word. And they see it working in us and they desire the same kind of effect in their own lives so that they can have the blessings that we have and the blessings that we aspire to have in heaven. That's only going to happen God's way, not our way. I found the word hand repeatedly in the text, especially with regard to Ezra. We mentioned in chapter 7, verse 10, one verse previous to that, we read, For on the first day of the first month he began to go up, that is Ezra, began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. That's a powerful kind of thing. The idea of God's hand being on a person, it symbolizes significance, it symbolizes authority, it symbolizes power. The idea that Ezra is set to a task and he's going to accomplish that task because God is with him, that God is empowering him to do this. In chapter 8, verse 22, when Ezra is trying to put the traveling party together to go from Babylon to Jerusalem, not necessarily an easy task. He writes, For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who abandon him. Now, I'm not sure that Ezra means that to be a literal axiom that good things are always going to happen to God's people and bad things are never going to happen to God's people. The Bible teaches otherwise. I think Ezra's probably astute enough to realize that's an overgeneralization. But his point here with regard to his dealings with the king is much more specific in its context. He didn't feel it was appropriate for him to ask for protection when he was assuming that God was going to protect him. I'm sure a lot of prayer went along with this commitment on Ezra's part. And his trust in God, of course, was ultimately well-founded. God did protect him. His hand was, in fact, with him. And in this situation, at least, it meant that Ezra was going to be shepherded and secured all the way to the end of his trip, as well as the rest of the people traveling with him. The hand of God was with them. Skipping ahead a little bit to chapter 8, and verse 31, we read, Then we journeyed from the river Hava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he rescued us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the road. What a great thing to think about the hand of God being with us as we go along the way. I offer to you that we are not necessarily protected from any kind of evil. But I assure you, the hand of God is on you if you are one of his children. He is there with you. He loves you. He is approving of your efforts that are done in his name. And if you will commit yourself to him, if you'll put your hand in his, he will secure you along your life's pathway, if not over or around, at least through the difficulties and hardships that you face, and ultimately all the way to your heavenly home that waits after this life is over. When the hand of God is with you, then you cannot possibly fail. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading Nehemiah. God bless and keep reading.